Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we just want to acknowledge that you are our teacher. We submit as believers to all that you have to teach us this day. And we depend and we rest completely in your spirit to enable us to all that is asked. And we do it with great delight. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you go with God and remain the way you are? You can't. I love these people on the front row. You know, I ask questions, they give me answers. (laughs) Can you go with God and remain the way you are? What we're talking about this morning is change. That's an interesting, very common word, but very interesting word. Some of us like change. Some of us don't like change. Some of us like change when we want to change and vice versa. So it's important how you use it and how you use it within context. Someone has said, and it's not original with me, but the seven last famous words of people who do not like change... And in a dying church, say, we have always done it that way. That's maybe true. There's something about the word change that intrigues me. There are times I would say, I don't want to change. I wish I wouldn't change. And there are other times that I am delighted with change, and I'm sure you're much the same way. Well, this morning we're going to interact with that. Because change is something that... There's always around us. You probably have friends who would say, or maybe you ask them when you're out with coffee or something with you, you ask a friend of yours and say, why did you change churches? Well, because there was too much change. <laughs> it's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? I left because, I changed churches because there was too much change in the one before I changed to this church. Change is all around us. Some people will have five to seven employment changes in a lifetime. That figure may have been bumped up a little bit more here in the last uh, decade. So we constantly realize, and this certainly wasn't true in, in my father's generation, generally there was, if there were two changes in employment, that was really somewhat uh, unusual. You probably have changed brands of toothpaste probably five or six times, according to what infomercial you have looked at recently, or the pricing of it. In America, professing Christians will probably change churches every four or five years. If we would just quickly take a toll around the auditorium, that would be the norm, four or five years. Sometimes it's necessary. You, You change locations. But it's change. Interesting. In fact, uh, most of us, and you'll appreciate that about the person sitting next to you, generally change your clothes every day. So why is it sometimes that Christians say, I just don't like change? Probably it's better to say it this way, I don't like the change. It's not that I don't like change, but I may not prefer, I may not like the change. In other words, that particular change. That's what I don't like. It's not change. It's a particular change. 
regards to my likes or dislikes. There are denominations like that in Christianity. Uh, there are some who, for the sake they don't want change and don't like change, still sit on wooden benches. I remember those days. That, for you young folks, that means there was no padding. It was just plain wood. And that would get... But you did stay awake because you hurt. <laughs> so that, I guess that was the good part of it. Okay. Um, they don't have electricity. It may be hot in church this morning in some parts of our country today in certain denominations, and they have chosen not to have air conditioning because they have chosen not to have electricity. Uh, I would prefer to have the air conditioning. Many of you would also. In all seriousness, what is it about this? We said that God doesn't change in His essence, in His very being, in His attributes. God does not change. It says, God changeth not in Malachi. And yet, we are asked to change. In the incarnation, there is change, yet God in His essence didn't change. He became the God-man. That was change. He took on human flesh. So what is it about me, or possibly you, when I get all worked up over change? Is it that the particular change I dislike? It certainly can't be the fact is that I do not like change, because all created things do change. God has a progressive plan, and since it's progressive, then it's always in a state of what? Change. As you go from Genesis to Revelation, there are changes, constant changes. And so we find this word that sometimes people get all worked up about. Churches get up all worked up about it. So can you, can you go with God and remain the way you are? The answer is no. There has to be what? Change. God created you and I to change. We must change. You'd never get old if you didn't change. You can't stay a teenager forever. Whether that's good or bad will be determined by your age probably. God calls. He regenerates converts, he justifies us, he adopts us, all in a split moment. And then he pours out sanctification, which is the rest of your life. And sanctification has one great word to it, change. That's what sanctification is. Progressive sanctification is God's going to take me the way I am, and because of redemption, he now is going to radically change me into the likeness of Christ. And when he comes again, from 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we all shall be what? Changed. Interesting, isn't it? So as a believer, you're here this morning as a New Testament believer. You've placed your faith in Christ, the living Christ, the living faith. Do you expect to change? Do you long for change? Do I long for change this week? Ben's going to change, I guarantee you. He's going to lose his sledgehammer. 
But I, as a believer, do I desire, do I fervently pray? Can I look at my journal and say, do I fervently pray to be changed? Oh, God, that I would be changed into your likeness. Lord, whatever it takes, and we studied Romans 6 through 8, Lord, no matter how difficult, I, Lord, I desire, I want to change. Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you would. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know it well, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in union with Christ, another way of saying, anyone born again? Well, if he is, he's a new new creature. Some translations, he's a new creation. The old things passed away. Watch this now. If you have your notes available there, this is the first one. Old things passed away. Behold, all things what? Have come. The new things have come. What's that insinuate? There is change. The old is gone. The new has come. That's change. Change has arrived. Because we are no longer a slave of Satan, John 8:44, but now we are a slave of Christ. Human beings never stop being slaves. There's no neutral ground. The choice is either one, and we all are born as a slave to Satan, and by redemption we are changed. Now we become a slave, a bond servant. Of Christ. That's an enormous change. That is a good change. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, we find even in, with our Lord Jesus, and Jesus kept increasing, it states. The word there is to change for the better. To change for the better. Jesus in his humanity changed for the better. He did not remain a baby. It was better for him to mature to adulthood, to do the will of the Father. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. So did Jesus learn and increase in wisdom? Yes. Never ceasing, though, to be truly God himself. He increased. He changed in wisdom. It was increasing in stature. He didn't always remain a small Jewish baby. He grew to adulthood. And he grew in favor with God and men. So as a believer then, I should expect to go through this very neat concept of change. And as you and I change, something marvelously happens. Because you and I as committed believers, we all are committed to change. That's the reason why God saved us for his glory. Now what happens is, is that these believers in changing the local body of believers, which we call the what? The church. It's the local church. It's not these blocks and paint and wood. It's a living organism. The local church is 
believers who are always in a state of change. Therefore, why would I come up with the idea that the local church should never change? How many of you are growing in wisdom and knowledge of your Lord? Should not the church be growing in wisdom and knowledge? Well, certainly. It just makes sense because this is the church. And as they are growing and maturing and becoming more like Christ, then the body is like that. And I would assume you're somewhat like me in this process, if you've been saved for a few years or a few months, there are new processes of this change. Uh, You begin to do things a little bit different. Therefore, that's going to be reflected in the church. So when your friend says, well, I change churches because I don't like change, you're right. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical to say it that way. Secondly is, who wants to be in a church that never changes? Really? Maybe one of the first questions we ought to ask if we are moved to another location in our country or another part of the world, and we say, well, I have a choice of three churches. They all believe the same as I understand the Scriptures, and so which one am I going to choose? I can't be in all three of them. I need some accountability, so I'm going to have to choose one. And... Maybe one of the questions that you and I would ask is, how often do you change things here? Now, change for change's sake can be nonsense. Change just to be different can have no benefit. But this kind of change is wonderful. And I would really like to be in a body of believers. They say, well, just a couple weeks ago or a month ago or six months ago, we change this. Why did you do that? Oh, because we believed it would enhance our worship of God. I want to belong to that church. I don't want to belong to a dying one that says, well, man, we have been singing these songs and we, we just, everything's, the, when you come here, you know exactly what it's going to be like. It's been like this way for 150 years. Well, they may be breathing, but theologically, they're probably dead. And that may have been one of the classic issues in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, to some extent. Well, come with me to Acts chapter 10, because this was something Jonathan, in context, was reading about this morning in Scripture reading. Peter. Peter was one of those old-time good Jewish guys. I'll never change. God forbid you ever find me changing. And so in the Old Testament, Israel was under a special covenant. They were holy and to be holy and separated and to have nothing to do with the Gentile world. If you want to be like us, you're going to have to come in to Israel and go through a process and reject your paganism and place your covenant trust in Jehovah God, which was great. At Pentecost, it reverses itself in one sense. and There's an enormous change. Now, instead of Israel being God's chosen vessel here and the world looking in and seeing this 
holy and godly light, which never really happened, but that was the intent, and so it became so unholy and so ungodly that God had to set them aside to a future day, future to us. And so at Pentecost, God brings in the concept of the church. And he says, this, this is what you're going to Jewish Christians, those first Jewish Christians at Pentecost and afterwards, they're going to be thinking this way. And God says, no, 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 no. We're going to change your thinking here. That's, that, no, no. That's no longer like that. Now, since the Holy Spirit lives within you, you're going to take the light to the what? The world. You're going to go and be that light, every one of you. There's not going to be a holy Jerusalem. You're going to take it to the world because I'm going to radically change you so that wherever you are, you're going to create change. Over and over again, we find this concept of change. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 28, and he references to Peter in the previous verse, and Peter said to them, and of course this, some of you will well know that Cornelius is a Gentile. An angel had come to him and said, you need to call Simon Peter. And God had been calling him and setting him up and preparing him to hear the gospel message. Here was Peter saying, I, no, no, no. You remember that sheet that came down in a vision out of heaven and eat of meats that were forbidden by the Jewish people? And Peter said, no, not me. I will not do this. And God changed his mind. Saying, now it is okay. Now notice what Peter says here. And Peter said to them, Cornelius and his family, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now, who's the change maker here? It's God. Peter, that's over and done with. If you're going to go with me, you're going to have to what? You're going to have to change. You cannot go with me unless you change. And so Peter says here to Cornelius and his family, And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came. You called me. I came. You a Gentile. I a Jew. I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask now, for what reason have you sent me? Well, we want to hear the gospel. Peter was changed. God changed him. That was an amazing thing for Peter. That's an amazing thing for you and for me. I grew up a certain way. I grew up in a certain church. I grew up with, you won't believe this, but Sunday school on Sunday morning. None of this preaching stuff. You, have, you came back on Sunday night to get the preaching stuff. And on Wednesday, if you was a man and you professed to know Christ, you led the Wednesday night service, even if you had been saved on Sunday. <laughs> that was extremely difficult change because I professed to be a Christian, wasn't a Christian, and I couldn't sing. 
So that was the beginning of Wednesday nights was simply for prayer. <laughs> prayer for me. <laughs> In all seriousness. So, biblically, we see this from Genesis to Revelation. Everything that is living, everything that God has created is always in a state of change. It's good for us. And as we change, the church changes. That's good. If these people are not changing and you're changing the church in order to have change, that's bad. Did you get that? I go, need to go back through that one again? Real quick. Okay. If we are changing, the church will change, the local body of believers. If we're not changing, the tendency is to find something externally that will change us so that we will change, which is backwards. It's backwards. The church changes because people change. As people become more like the likeness of Christ, so will the body of believers, the church. We'll touch on that a little more in just a moment. So what's the point? The point is that everything that is living changes. Is it our mindset to accept change? Can we accept a time change? You say, oh, I knew it. I know how some of you think. After 40 years, I can, I can read you like a book. This message, because the elders have got back from advance and there's going to be enormous change. Just get ready for it, folks. You're dead wrong. <laughs> uh, it's not that it hasn't happened in the past. No, this is not a setup. But in all seriousness, <laughs> i got to tell you this one first. This is, this is true. Remember when we used to have two services? Anybody remember that? We've changed so much I can't even remember what the times were. What was it, 9 o'clock? And then there was church at 1045. Okay, all right. Like it is now, except we have one preaching service, time of worship together, and then our adult education, children's ministries. Well, a person came to me back in those days when we were changing back to one service. And they said, would you guys just reconsider this change? It just really rips me apart. And I'm thinking, what is so bad about, I mean, we're not changing any, we're just, what is this? And so I asked him, I knew him well, and I just said, you know, what's, what's the problem? Well, it, it just destroys my whole schedule for golf on Sunday. I am dead serious. Now, is that what Christianity is about? Lord, whatever it takes of conforming to your likeness, not that change of time would do that necessarily or change of any other thing. But come with me to Second Peter. This is a little longer passage. Where I want you to catch the change here. And before we read this, let me ask the question just, for us to consider. When was the last time that I could go back, taking myself and say, how far do I have to go back? How many days, how many weeks, how many months that there was what you and I would call, wow. Now I need to change to be like that. Thank you, Lord. 
somehow have overlooked that, ignored that, or whatever, but wow. I want to change to be like that. How far do I have to go back? How far do you have to go back? Well, Peter, after the Acts 10, many years after the Acts 10, probably anywhere upwards to 30 years. So Peter is older. He's nearing death. And so he writes his second epistle, his second letter to primarily Jewish believers. And in chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, we read, Seeing that his divine power... God's divine power has granted to us everything. Nothing's lacking. Nothing's missing. I don't have to go to the world for anything that will help me to change to be like Christ. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these, this calling excellence, this knowledge, and by the way, that word knowledge there is not academic knowledge, it's experiential knowledge. I know, that's mind, I know and I have learned by doing it. That's this word here. It has a little preposition on the front of it. And he says, these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, your sharers in it. Also, having escaped the corruption, boy, is that a change? Escaping corruption and becoming a sharer in the divine nature, that's a horrendous change, isn't it? That's shocking. Verse 5, now for this very reason also, apply all diligence. I, I, there is to be change that is constantly occurring. Now we're going to talk about diligence. And in your face, supply more moral excellence or supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence don't stop there knowledge yes experiential knowledge and in your knowledge oh, you learn self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness oh, th- these things are developing they all may be there in some little seed form at the beginning, but they're developing, they're increasing, the capacity is getting larger, there is change. Constant change is the idea here. Then in verse 9 he says, for he who lacks the, this changeableness, this will be interesting, For he who lacks these qualities, he who is not changing, okay, is blind. Physically? No. Is blind. Spiritually? Yes. Ah, you're short-sighted. You can only see up front. Having forgotten... Oh, I'm blinded because I forgot something. I have forgotten the purification from my former sins. Therefore, verse 10, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling. You see, changelessness, when I can find no evidence of real spiritual change, the Word of God says, consider that you're blind. 
Look at it carefully there again. Or short-sighted. And if there's no change, you have forgotten your purification from your former sins. Wow, that's that's kind of blunt, isn't it? If I have no evidence of real change in the likeness of Christ, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm under the membership list of the church, and I'm good to go. Well, Peter says, having forgotten. Verse 10, brethren, be all more diligent to make certain about his calling, choosing you for as long as you practice these things. Practice is change. You practice to change, to get better, don't you? You will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. There's always the need of reminder, change, change, change. Not for the sake of change, but for development. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Because when the difficulties come, as we've talked about in previous uh, uh, teachings in Romans 6 through 8, as the problems come, I have a tendency to stop and to say, this is painful, this is hurtful. I don't want to take another step because that's going to bring more what? And now Peter's addressing that because these people are being persecuted. And they are struggling. You see, when Christ came, there was an enormous change physically and in many other ways, but not his essence. And when he took the step into this world to be changed and to take on human flesh and to die for the sins of the world, he knew that there were going to be what? Struggles and pain and death. So therefore, he models what change is all about. It will cost us. That's the point. It will cost us. It's the reason why we must get right, right up first, at front, that I'm a slave of Christ. He didn't ask me if I wanted pain. My will is submitted to, to him. Verse 13 again, or verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my flesh, is imminent. I'm going to die. That's facing me. As also our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Therefore, he says to the leadership of the church, always remind. Be a model of it and always remind your people to change. And be in a process of change. If you do not change, then you may be blind. At best, nearsighted. You cannot see far off. You cannot see the end of your change and the glory that it brings to Christ. It's a self-protection. You want to preserve self. And so, therefore, we get all upset about changing of times and changing of locations and changing of this and changing of that. 
When's the last time you heard a person left the church because there was so much change and the change was doctrine? Probably haven't. No, well, it wasn't over doctrine, but it was, uh, you know, wow. So we changed to plan to change again because things are not like I want it, and they never will be. So in light of this truth, why would you and I not desire to change? I don't know whether this is true or not, but I read it a number of years ago. I seem to think it probably isn't, but it illustrates something. You may have heard it. It was during World War II. And my understanding of this illustration was that they had been on the front lines for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. The major comes one day and says, I got great news. No, the war's not over. But you're going to have a change of clothes. Yes! Yay! Wow! Finally! They were ex- I would expect so after weeks. And they called them all together. Joe, you change with Sam. And Phil, you change with Bob. You see, sometimes change doesn't help the situation. So we do have to be careful. We do have to be careful. The the change is that we are more like, and the more that we're more, more like Christ, the body will be more like Christ because it carries that influence. Okay. Now, come to Mark 8 with me. And he who summoned the crowd with his disciples, Christ summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be a disciple of mine, you're going to be converted, is what Jesus was saying, well, then you've got to change. What's the first change? This is not normal. Deny self. So we're talking about repentance. Deny self. Change. Change your mind. If you're going to follow and come after me, Jesus just boldly just said, you must deny yourself. And the second change is, and you've never done this, you're going to take up what? You're going to live out the consequences. That's it. You can't deny self and have no consequences. It's going to cost. It's going to be change. You see it? So take up your cross. You're going to live out your cons, and you must follow me. The word there means determined direction and movement. You've never been this way before. You've never had to deny yourself in this way totally. And you've never taken up your cross and paid the consequences for being a disciple of mine. This is going to get you hurt as Peter and all the disciples found out in the latter days, right? And you're going to have to be ready for change because there's going to be now a new direction and a new movement and a new commitment. The Christian life is all about what? Man, I want to be in a church. It's all about change into its likeness. Bring it on. And the world will say, whoa, 
Notice in Galatians 2.20, and you have many times, but in Galatians 2.20, Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, Providence, I have been crucified with Christ. Yeah, co-crucified with him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been co-crucified. It brings change. Now, let me bring you to Matthew 28. Because this is really about change. You're familiar with it. Because we would call this the Great Commission. And certainly it is. So in this great commission, number one is, in verse 18, Jesus says, I have all authority, so nobody can trump this, so listen well. Right? I want you to go and make what? Disciples. And baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I have taught you. Right? We got it? What's, there's only one command here. In these two verses, as you look at it on the screen, what is the command? Don't say it out loud. You got it? What's the command? There's only one. The command for the church is make disciples. Normally in English we would think it's going, but that's a participle. As you are going, here's the command, make disciples. Now, who didn't he say that to in the body of Christ? Who's excluded from that? No one. No one. So we have a command to make disciples. You know it well. You've heard it before. And... As you and I are going and make disciples, not because we're an elder, not because we're a deacon, not because we're whatever, but because we are born again. That's a change. I've never made disciples before I was converted. Not to Jesus, obviously. Now, here's the neat thing. Make disciples. What does that imply? Well, I'm, I think we can make a safe assumption that you make disciples so that Christianity is always alive and moving forward, right? Otherwise, you and I would have, we wouldn't be here this morning because it would have stopped long ago, correct? So we have this understanding then to make a disciple. And I will put myself, okay, I'm the first generation, let's say, just... As an illustration, this is Don. Don, by God's enablement, enables me to give the gospel to Jim. So who saves Jim? Good, thank you. See, we have made change. Now we realize it's God that does that work. Now, what is Jim to do? Make a disciple. This is the second generation. So let's say Jim wins a secretary of the Lord who is 
Can't spell that. <laughs> I love people who always take me literally. Okay. First generation, second generation, third generation. What's Lois to do? Now, if I'm Satan and I want to stop this, but what does Satan do to me to stop this? Well, he could say, don't make a disciple, but that would be disobedience, right? Making a disciple is for the purpose that the person that is led to Christ is radically changed will make another disciple and another disciple and another disciple, right? For 2,000-some years. So I bring Jim to Christ in that sense. And Jim says, thank you, now I'm born again. And he doesn't make a disciple, what happens? In two generations, Christianity what? Ceases to exist. You know, that's a pretty profound illustration. Because you may be a believer and you've never thought about making a disciple. Because you have grown up in a church concept in which preachers and evangelists do that. In fact, we pay them well to do it for us. We give our money and we pray. Now we have to be biblical and come into a radical change. No, the text says, believer wins another one to Christ and it moves on. That's the Great Commission. That's it. Right out of the box. So what happens then is born-again believers saying, wow, I've never done that before. Understandable. Well, where do I go to learn how to do that? I don't know, but don't come to church. No, I'm being silly. Where should you come? Because the church is not an entertainment center. It is a teaching and training center. Isn't it? Yeah. So over 100 years ago, we decided it would be a lot better if other parachurches did it. And so we could send our young people off to other institutions to be trained to do this. Not necessarily wrong in itself, but the church was, at large was very happy with this and said, wow, we don't have to change. <laughs> we can remain the way we are. Come, hear a, hear a message. Get filled up, tanked up, have a great hug and go home and come back next week and do it all over again. That's the church I grew up in. And to tamper with that is all-out war, isn't it? It's all-out war. Okay. A couple more verses. Colossians 1. Of all the verses we have read, this is the most important one. Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Don't miss it in your outline there. Discipleship that does not move into the third generation is dead. That's the point. 
And Christians ought to be saying, you know, I can see a necessity to change over doctrine and the doctrine of discipleship. If you're not going to teach me and train me how to do that, then I am, by God's grace, going to move somewhere else, and rightly so, so that I can do that. Well, in Colossians 1, there are two things that are major for this to happen. See if you can see it. Because of the hope, Paul says in his letter to the church at Colossae, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, so he's talking to believers, because of this hope, this expectation for certain that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, and he calls it the what? What is it? The gospel. We say the good news. Okay. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world, it, what does it refer to? The gospel. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Even as it has been doing in use also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What's the two things? The two things that are true of every believer who is maturing is that you and I proclaim the what? The gospel. And who? No. Gospel growth. That's what the text says. Doesn't say anything about church growth. Talks about gospel growth. Look at it. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth. How did you hear it? Somebody pro what? Somebody proclaimed the gospel to you. Which has come to you. We see that. Just as in all the world, also this same gospel is constantly bearing fruit and what? Increasing. What's increasing? It's the gospel that's growing. It's actually, we can say it this way. We proclaim the gospel and we pray for what? We pray for the gospel to grow. Yeah. Why? (laughs) Because God takes care of the rest. Let's see if we got it. Two things. Proclaim the gospel? Yes. I can share the gospel. I might share it a little bit different than you and you from I, but we share the gospel. Now what do I pray for? I pray that the gospel increases, grows. 
It grows in believers, yes, and what? Unbelievers. Because as it's growing in unbelievers, that's how they come to know who? Christ. And after they come to know Christ, I continue for the gospel to be growing in what? Believers. It's very simple. Proclaim it and pray it. Proclaim the gospel, pray the gospel to do what? Bear fruit and increase, even as it's been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. There it is. Wow. Proclaim the gospel, come to church, and let's what? <laughs> let's get together and pray for the growth of the gospel we spread. Let's pray that it increases in the lives of those who are unbelievers so that they come to place their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And we pray for one another for that same good news to be continually what? Increasing and growing in our lives. That's the text. So what we need are more... Well, I won't go there. We don't need more church growth. We need more what? Prayer for gospel what? Growth. You can't grow a church. Only God can do that. Last verses. Acts 13. Now, they were at Antioch. Just, I, just, I wanted to share this, the first five verses, because here's an enormous amount of change, and it's in a local church. We've been talking about individuals. Now, they were at Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria, not up in Asia Minor. Now, they were at Antioch in the church, it's believers, that was their prophets and their teachers. Barnabas is one. Simeon is another one who was called Niger. And Lucius of Cyrene, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with a Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's the fifth one, and Saul becomes who? Paul of Tarsus. <laughs> Paul of Tarsus, yes. Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul. While they were ministering to the Lord, what were they doing? Idle? No, they were ministering to the Lord. These are leaders of the church. Ministering to the Lord, and they were fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. <laughs> God comes in and wipes out 40% of the leadership. Modern-day church would go berserk over that. Man, don't take our leaders. Take this young guy and this young gal who don't know anything, and we'll ship them off to Bible school and into seminary, and we'll send them out to win the world. Not that Bible school and seminary, as I often say, is wrong. I'm just saying, look at, look at the text. So they take the mature and the experience... This is the way you guys would do business. <laughs> you want to start a new plant? You'd say, oh, we got this young in engineer just fresh out of Ohio State. Send him. He don't count. No, we're going to take the head of engineering. What? <laughs> That's what you would do, right? You want to be successful. Verse 3, then while they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The church released these two men... They released them from their ministries, and the Holy Spirit did the what? What did the Holy Spirit do? It sent them. It was the Holy Spirit sends. The church releases. 
Church releases them from their successful, consistent ministry to the local body of believers. They have proven they can do it. Therefore, those are the ones we want for church planners. And so the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to take 40% of your leadership and I'm going to send them out. That's change, right? I vote for Dave Harvey and Paige Ward. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> Go across the sea. Well, maybe that's what Lord, the Lord will do. That'll be fine. It'll be biblical. Verse 5, when they reach Salmas, these two guys, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, they began to what? Proclaim the word of God in the synagogues and the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Well, what's the big point? Well, the big point this morning is this. A biblical disciple is a disciple maker. The text says, not interested in just somebody following Christ. They follow Christ so that others will follow Christ. It's, it really is better stated, disciple maker. We're just not a disciple. So, tomorrow when you meet your Christian friend, you say, I just want to know something. Are you a disciple maker? Have fun. So, what's, what do we do? We proclaim the gospel. We pray for the gospel to increase in the lives of the hearers. Let's apply it. Three things I'd like for us to consider. I'd like for myself to consider. When was the last, what was the last, when was the last significant change in your spiritual growth? Spiritual growth meaning, wow, thank you, Lord. That was a significant change in my life. Now, that may be something most people would say is very small, but it can be very significant. Number two, pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel and for the gospel to increase in the lives of the hearers. That's the good news. We proclaim, very easy, two Ps. Proclaim and what? Pray for the gospel to increase. And number three, it's a tough one, isn't it? And you may say before God, no, I'm not. Now the tougher question, why not? Well, it may be, I didn't know. Shame on you, teacher, and you would be right. Now we all know, and so now we can all become what? Disciple makers. That may begin with some of you in your home with your children. It doesn't stop there, but that's certainly don't overlook it. And begin to pray, Lord, I don't know who you've chosen. So I'm looking for opportunities. My question this morning is, folks, this is just all info. I'm asking myself, how dead serious am I about this? And that will determine where the church will be tomorrow. That's where the church will be tomorrow. And so the answer to our question can you go with God and remain the way you are? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Father, this is a heavy, weighty question.
It's not about how many people anybody has led to Christ, even though certainly that is what should happen. But Lord, we're just not interested in today. We're interested in tomorrow. And therefore, we are disciple makers. We teach, we train. And we teach and we train and we teach and we train. And Father, when we are challenged or influenced to be something else, may we say emphatically no. The cost is too high. Lives of souls are too precious. We're not going to entertain. We're not going to have church. We're going to do church. We're going to do the living thing. We're going to proclaim and we're going to pray. That's what we want our lives to be for your glory. And so, Lord, we are delighted in that you do change us. So I would pray right, right now at this moment as we who profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who believe we have a home in heaven, that we would pause for a moment and say, Lord, am I a disciple maker? And why not? And our response will not be forgotten, as we well know. May God you be glorified and exalted and praised with our response to you. Because it is reality for why you left us here until you come. For this we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.